Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And Michael, what I thought we would do, if it's okay with you, I might just read those two verses and let you explain to us, uh, because these are verses that, that Christians are very familiar with. And uh, maybe you could put it into context for us and tell us what it is, in fact, talking about. Okay. It's, it says, here it is, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Again, this is uh, this is one that we characteristically hear uh, around the 25th of December, isn't it? Yes, this could um, be the continuation of our Christmas show. This is the continuation. <laughs> this is the part two of the Christmas special. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. What is the context of this verse and what does it really mean? Okay, so first of all, the important background information we've already established. That this is a chapter that's speaking about, you know, just as we saw in chapter 7, uh, that the context to this child being born in chapter 7 was the great political crisis that King Ahaz was facing this impending invasion by the northern tribes and by Syria. So that's the only way to understand what happens in chapter 7, verse 14. So again, to understand these verses of chapter 9, we have to understand the, the context politically is mm-hmm. that there is this very, very serious uh, you know, existential threat to the people living in the kingdom of Judah by the invading Assyrian armies led by Sancherev. And it describes the great darkness that the people were feeling because that was, uh, you know, it was basically, it would be very easy for them to feel that this is the end. We're being surrounded. It's this huge army. We're finished. And what is taking place in this chapter is, again, it's not speaking about a Messiah who's going to be coming in 700 years from then. It's just that that doesn't really fit into this chapter. It's talking about a child who was born at that time already, someone who already had been born, who was going to be uh, the the tool, the, the agent through which God would basically rescue them. And mm-hmm. what you see is that the um, Hebrew here really speaks very clearly about a child that has already been born in the past. The Hebrew word yulad, uh, wherever you look it up in the Hebrew Scriptures, refers to someone who has already been born. It's in the past tense. And the, the other word, nitan, has been given to us. Again, is in the past tense. And when it says that vayikrashmo, his name has already been called. So the Hebrew makes it fairly clear that this child that's being spoken of has already been born. And we're going to be finding out about this child, who he is and what he's going to do. Now, that may not satisfy all Christian readers because they may say, and I can hear them saying this, that we have something in the Bible called the prophetic past, being that they would argue probably that not every time in the Bible where it speaks about something in the past tense is it referring to something that took place already in the past, that they say that sometimes a prophecy is so clear that Scripture refers to a future event as if it had already taken place. So that is, again, it's not an illegitimate way of reading the Bible. I would say that 
uh, it's legitimate, but you need a reason to give that kind of a novel twist. It's not the normal way of reading it, meaning that the past tense usually means past tense, unless you have a very, very good reason for reading it as not the past tense. But what I would say is that even if one was to insist that this is the prophetic past, that it's still not speaking about something that's going to take place in 700 years. That's the clear thing. That if it's referring to someone who's going to be born, it's referring to someone who's literally about to be born any moment. Because these people don't have a lot of time until they're going Mm. to have to be rescued. So we, we know that to be able to read this in context, it's speaking about someone named Chizkiyahu, Hezekiah. And he had already been born. He was young. And he was actually a young king. And we're being told here that he would be the agent through which the Jewish people would be rescued in this dire uh, crisis. Now, one of the ways, and I think, this, uh, I think this is usually missed by Christian readers, is that the text here gives us um, two very, very important clues uh, that really sort of nail it down and clarify that what we're reading in this chapter is uh, about a miraculous, incredibly miraculous rescue and salvation from a very, very uh, dire, threatening, impending military doom situation. And one of those textual clues is, um, I guess in a Christian version, it would be in verse, um, I guess it's verse 4, where it speaks about um, that you've broken the yoke as in the days of Midian. Now, what is that referring to, that God has broken the yoke as in the days of Midian? Hmm. And uh, all you need to do, really, is to go back to the story of Midian uh, in the book of Judges, chapters 6 through 8, where hmm. the Jewish people are very very similar situation. They are being oppressed by the Midianites to the point of you know, where it's almost the end of the story for them. I mean, it's, it's very bleak. And so you have a very similar kind of uh, situation of an impending, uh, basically, uh, catastrophic invasion. And in that story, in the book of Judges, uh, God raises up... Uh, Gideon. Gideon, exactly. Gideon mm. uh, leads his people. And when we read the story, we see that it wasn't... Uh, a normal kind of uh, victory that he was able to fight, meaning that he didn't have uh, a fair fight on his hands. He, he, he whittled down his army to about 300 men. Uh, he wanted to make it clear, it seems, that he wasn't going to win this battle because he w- was a, a superpower just like the uh, Midianites. Mm. So he whittles down his fighting force. He wanted only people that were righteous and only people that were worthy to be fighting, but it doesn't really look like he has much of a chance because he's up against a huge, huge army. And so when we read chapters 6 through 8 in the book of Judges, we see A, the Jewish people are faced with a very bleak outlook. They're about to be wiped off the face of the earth. You have this person who is the agent of God in the book of Judges. It's Gideon the enemy of the Midianites, as Isaiah says, as in the days of Midian. And what happens sort of out of the blue is this incredible victory where a huge number of the enemy, 120,000, we're told, are just vanquished overnight. 
So that's the, let's say, the model that Isaiah is giving us here. Isaiah is saying that whatever is taking place in chapter 9 here is just like in the days of Midian. And we know what happens in Midian is that there is this great hero that God raises up, and he leads the Jews in an incredible supernatural victory over their enemies. Now, the second textual clue would be in verse 7 in a Christian Bible, and in verse 6 in a Jewish version here, where the verse says that uh, this, this child who will be born will have uh, government and peace upon him and upon the throne of David, meaning this is going to be a king of the Jewish people, has to be from the line of David. And we're told that his throne and his time of peace will be established by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a very unusual phrase in the Bible. It only appears, actually, in this story of Isaiah chapter 9. You only find it actually comes up three times in the entire Bible, as far as I know. Now, one time you see it is when later on in the book of Isaiah, he actually gives you the details of this invasion by Sancherev, the Assyrians. It's Mm -hmm. basically in chapters 36 and 37 in the book of Isaiah. And again, you see that Jerusalem is totally surrounded. Uh, Sancherev is about to just wipe them off the face of the earth. And Hezekiah, who was the leader of the Jewish people, he's the king of the Jewish people at that time, he leads, the, he leads them in this incredible victory where actually the angel of God comes and miraculously van- vanquishes the entire Assyrian army. Here, 180,000 of them are mm. killed just overnight. It's in chapter 37, verse 36. So again, you have the same model where you have this huge army about to wipe us out. There's this great leader, and just miraculously, there's an instantaneous destruction of just the entire enemy army. Mm. And verse 32 in that chapter of Isaiah, chapter 37, verse 32 says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Uh, Now, you see again, the whole story is recapitulated because often... The stories that take place in Isaiah, you'll find in the book of Kings. So, if you go to 2 Kings, chapter 19, you'll see again this whole story is retold of the Assyrian invasion of, of, of Judah, Judea, and uh, again, the impending doom of Jerusalem. They're surrounded, they're in darkness, and again, their angel of the Lord comes miraculously wipes out 185,000 of the enemy army. That's in chapter 19, verse 35. But if you go back to 19, verse 31, again, it uses this expression, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. How about that? So, what, what Isaiah is doing here, I mean, you have so many textual clues. You have the context you get from the previous chapters in the Bible. Uh, all these textual clues, it's telling you, just it's hitting you over the head. And it's telling us that this is a story not of the birth of some Messiah in 700 years. This is telling you that, that we were in dire straits and there was someone that was the agent of, of our redemption here, just like Gideon was the agent of the redemption in the time of the Midianites. This particular child who has been born already and who will be the agent of our salvation in this story we're told, is going to have this uh, naming. <laughs> mm-hmm. And here we, uh, we're it's, not... It's the, naming, it's the naming that people find problematic. This is, this yeah. is where uh, the, the, the Christians bolster their, 
their claim that this is talking about Jesus because the name, once again, for the people we have, uh, he will be called, at least in, is what it says in the New King James, wonderful counselor, mighty God, uh, someone called mighty God, an everlasting father, prince of peace, and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. What, what does Hezekiah mean and how can this possibly uh, well, be connected? See, I think that, you know, certainly any reader of the Bible here, you know, this would perk their ears. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I think I once, I think when we had our first session about um, the, the rules of the game and the rules of, of exegesis, mm-hmm. I think what often happens is that the Christian reader um, really begins with, a, with an anomaly in the text, meaning that, you know, they'll often find something in the text that is strange, unusual, weird, hard to understand, and they simply drop Jesus into it. Now, here it's very important to point out that uh, when you're working with a Christian translation, the textual problems become a little bit more pronounced. But you'll often find that a Hebrew translation of this passage will read very differently. Uh, I'll give you an example from the translation I'm reading here, which is the Art Scroll English Tanakh, Mm -hmm. um, which is very, very sort of a similar approach to taken by most Jewish translations, it says the following, the wondrous advisor, mighty God, eternal father, called his name the Prince of Peace. Meaning that Ah. it's not saying the child's name is this, you know, 14 word name, which is sort of strange that, although we saw previously in Isaiah that, you know, kids sometimes have these long names. Mm -hmm. Um, But here, what it's saying is that um, God, who is referred to as the wondrous advisor, the mighty God, the eternal father, that God will call the name of this child the Prince of Peace. And the reason, I mean, it's pretty clear, is that we see um, that uh, Hezekiah is going to be the agent to bring peace to the Jewish people. Um, And this is actually spelled out in Isaiah chapter 39, verse 8. Um, It says, for example, Hezekiah says to Isaiah, "'Good is the word of the Lord,' which you have spoken, he said, moreover, for there will be peace and truth in my days. So Hezekiah was someone who, thank God, was able to preside over a kingdom of peace. And so what Isaiah chapter 9 here is saying is that this child who will be the agent for the salvation and the redemption of the Jewish people at this time of crisis, God is going to name this child the Prince of Peace because he's going to bring peace to to the people at that time. So, when you, when you read the verse like that, all of the Christian fantasies just go out the window. Um, because what they get all excited about is that somehow there's a kid, and one of the names of this kid is Mighty God. And that is what excites the imagination of the Christian. Mm. Because they see mm. this as a justification for their belief that there's going to be this human being who's going to ultimately be God. Um, it, it bolsters their belief in the divinity of Jesus. It helps them with their idea that a human being can be ultimately a god. Um, that this kid who's born will not just be a kid. He won't just be, you know, a typical kid from the, uh, you know, from the playground. His kid's going to mm. be god in the flesh. Yeah. Um, the everlasting father, no doubt. Yes. Um, so, that's one problem, meaning that that, that if you totally ignore the context here, which I think is, you can only do at your own peril, but if you totally ignore the context, then you're stuck with this name, which, again, you have to figure out how to decipher the name. 
And the, the, probably the, the most simple way of reading the name, the most normal way of reading it, is that God, who is the eternal father and the wondrous advisor, God will name this kid the Prince of Peace, finished, end of the story. There's not much of a problem. Mm. However, you could, if you wanted to, and I think that it's certainly not impossible to read that the name of this child is going to be the wondrous advisor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, fine. And now the question is, okay, so is the Bible here then saying that there's going to be this child who will be actually God himself? So we already touched on this topic uh, when we discussed Isaiah chapter 7, because there Mm -hmm. Christians read the name Emmanuel they mistranslate it to, to mean God with us. So it's sort of asserting that if someone has a name like that, that person must be God who is with us. Um, sort of ignoring the fact that you have millions of Jews with the name Emmanuel. But the, the reality is that in the Bible, um, having a divine name does not mean that the person or the object is God. Um, mm. We know, for example, that in Genesis 33, verse 20, Jacob uh, erects an altar, and he calls it El Elohe Yisrael, God, the God of Israel. Uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone is going to even entertain the possibility that this uh, piece of stone is the Almighty God. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Moses built an altar in Exodus chapter seventeen, verse fifteen. He calls it uh, by the four-letter name of God, the Tetragrammaton. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Hashem DC, the Lord is my banner. So again, no, no one would think that this rock is uh, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. The mm. point of a Hebrew name is it tells you something about God. So when, when Moses names this altar, God is my banner, that's all we're being told is that God is the banner of Moses, not right. that this rock is uh, God. Um, Gideon, by the way, in chapter 6 builds an altar and names it uh, the four-letter name of God, the Tetragrammaton Shalom. Mm-hmm. The Lord is peace. The Lord is my peace. Mm-hmm. So, again, obviously God is uh, ultimately the cause of all peace in the world. It's interesting. Jeremiah chapter 23 says that the Messiah himself, that's actually going to be a messianic prophecy. We're going to get to that. It speaks about the Messiah having the name, the Lord is our righteousness. Um, but in Jeremiah 33, it says that Jerusalem will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Mm, that's uh, true. Yeah, so, I mean, I can go through, uh, I mean, a list of hundreds of names. And, of examples. Yeah. So, so let, me just, let me just ask you, once again, uh, Hezekiah, what is the meaning of his name? So, <laughs> so it's interesting. Uh, Hezekiah, uh, you could theoretically translate as uh, the might of God or mighty God. Um, so the name itself, Hezekiah, the name of this king, uh, actually in Hebrew means mighty God or the might of mm. God. Uh, it doesn't have to be translated that way. You know, um, for example, uh, the Hebrew here is El Gibor. So El, you know, is often a short form of Elohim. Elohim is mm-hmm. one of God's titles or names. Yes. But, uh, for example, El simply means power. For example, in Genesis thirty-one twenty-nine, uh, Lavan says to Jacob, there is El Yadi, there is power in my hand to do you evil. Mm. So no translation reads that as the little God in my hand. The word El simply means power. Um, in the Bible, Elohim sometimes are judges, 
where God says to Moses, I'm going to make you an Elohim over Pharaoh. simply mm. means you're going to be a powerful over Pharaoh. You'll be an authority over mm. Pharaoh. Um, there is a verse, interesting, by the way, in Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 21. It speaks about the Ele Giburim, the strong among the mighty. Uh, they don't translate it there as, you know, the mighty gods, plural. So mm. here... Uh, you know, you could translate El Gibor, um, again, if this is the name of, of Hezekiah, that is his name. Hezekiah, Hezekiah, is uh, Hebrew for either the mighty God or God is mighty. Uh, or you could translate it just as simply or equally well as El Gibor could be a powerful ruler. Um, so it doesn't necessarily imply any divinity. Um, again, even if someone's name is translated as mighty God, that does not mean that the person is God. It's just a simple Hezekiah is, is deity. I mean, clearly that is not the case. And uh, But that is the definition of his name. Okay, so it, it's fair to conclude uh, from the evidence at hand in the context that this is speaking about Hezekiah. It's very, very clear it's talking about Hezekiah. It's, it's entirely clear. And the only, you know, the only part of the passage that's not clear is... Um, what is what the name of the child is going to be? Meaning that it seems that the most elegant way of translating this is that this person, the agent of God, who's going to be the salvation of the Jewish people in this story. So the mighty uh, God, the wonderful advisor, the eternal Father, will name this kid the Prince of Peace because that's what Hezekiah is going to ultimately be. He's going to be the agent that brings peace to the Jewish people. Right. Um, again, if someone were to insist, no, that's not the way it's translated. What it really means is they're going to name this kid, um, you know, the wonderful advisor, the mighty God, the, one, the eternal father, the prince of peace. So again, it's quite possible that all these attributes, all these uh, titles are somehow attached to Hezekiah Hezekiah. And again, they wouldn't mean that he is uh, God in the flesh. I think it's interesting, by the way, that they that one of these names is the Eternal Father. Now, uh, Christians who are, are attached to the idea of a Trinity, I, I wonder how they are able to square this because, you know, Jesus is usually considered the Son and not the Father. So hmm. why would they be naming him in this passage the Father if he's not the Father but the Son? Again, that's not our problem, Mark. That's a Christian problem to deal with. Mm-hmm. 